You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. All right, well, Christmas is uh, right around the corner, and I don't know if you've finished up all of your Christmas shopping yet. We're pretty close, uh, but if you have, and if you have a few more things uh, to buy, and if the people that you are buying those things for are in need of, say, um, a, you know, original Picasso or a 1959 vintage of Dom Perignon, uh, my friends, look no further. I have something for you. Uh, you need to head yourself over to Sotheby's. Have you guys heard of Sotheby's before? Uh, Sotheby's is a, um, it's the largest art dealer and auction house in the world. Uh, it's kind of a big deal. Last year alone, Sotheby's did $5.5 billion in uh, art and jewelry and real estate auctions. So massive thing. To give you kind of like a category of the scale of stuff we're talking about, uh, just uh, last year, a uh, portrait, a painting of Jesus done by this little known guy named Leonardo da Vinci was sold at Sotheby's for the highest price of any piece of art ever sold in history, $450 million. It's like this big. Uh, and I got to tell you, it was worth every cent. I paid for it. I've, it's fantastic. <laughs> Gorgeous piece. Come see it sometime. Needless to say, uh, there, are, there are some big money uh, passing through hands at, at Sotheby's. And it was now uh, 2012, I believe. Uh, there was a piece of art sold uh, through this company called the St. Jerome. I don't know if you heard th- this story. It, it's, a, it's a piece of art that was painted in the 1500s by a guy named Parmigianino, which is irrelevant to this story, but it just feels good to say. So uh, he painted this in the 1500s, and it was sold through Sotheby's to the tune of uh, just under a million bucks. So this, this painting uh, went out. Then, and, But over the next few years, though, suspicions started to rise about the authenticity of this piece of work. Th- there began to be some chatter about, was this an original or not? So this company actually hired an investigator to kind of like CSI this painting and figure out if it's the real deal or not. And uh, what they found was super interesting. They, they, they discovered, uh, through taking some samples on the, the painting itself, that in over 20 places on this particular painting, the St. Jerome, there was a, a, a modern synthetic green pigment that was used on that painting, a pigment which wasn't invented until 400 years after the painting was said to have been painted. So, so that would have put this painting at roughly like 1950, right? Uh, which is about how much it was worth after they found that out, $19.50. Uh, but this obviously was a, a big scandal. Sotheby's had to, to refund uh, the money to the buyer. They sued the seller for selling them a, a piece of bogus art. And it's interesting, uh, you know, what, what determined it for them, what, how they sussed that out. Uh, what they did is they looked at the art and they were... They were asking good critical questions uh, to determine whether or not this was a forgery, and they concluded that it was a forgery because it lacked the authenticating marks of the artist. That there were things on this painting that that artist just wouldn't have done, couldn't have done. And in that way, it was designated a forgery. 
Now, why am I telling you this this morning? Because today, we're kind of looking at the same thing. We're ending our series today called Disciple, and what we're doing in this series is we're asking the question, what are those authenticating marks of someone who claims to have sort of thrown their life on Jesus, who's claiming to be a disciple of Jesus? How can we spot what's real and what's a forgery? How can we determine that? What are those qualities that verify that we're the real deal, if you were? Now, last week, um, if you were here, Rodney did such a great job giving us the fourth of the five marks that make a disciple, and that was multiplication. We were in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 13, and he was uh, working through the parable of the seed turning into the tree and how the kingdom of God is ever growing and expanding. And we learned that one of the things it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we would be about the work of multiplication, that we would be committed to things like discipleship, seeing the image of Jesus replicated in person after person after person. As we step out in faith, share the gospel, disciple folks, those folks disciple folks, they plant churches, and we see this seed of the kingdom turn into this massive tree. And this week, as we're ending things, we're, we're going to be back in Matthew 13. So if you have a Bible, get it out. We'll be in Matthew 13. And, and uh, we're just going to be a handful of verses down. Jesus is giving us another group of parables, still talking about the kingdom. And I want us to camp out on just one of those parables this morning. Uh, because I think it's going to be helpful in explaining for us what this final mark of a disciple is. Namely, <laughs> that a disciple embraces risk. That a disciple embraces risk. Okay, uh, so uh, now before we get into the text, we need to do a little bit of work here to explain what we mean when we're saying the word risk, embracing risk. What is it? What isn't it? That sort of thing. So let me just give you a, a cursory definition so we can all sort of be on the same page. I'm totally stealing this definition from Piper. He wrote a book on it. The definition is better than what I would come up with, so I'm just doing that. Thanks, Papa P. Uh, it's on the screen for you, and uh, it's this, that, uh, that risk defined is simply, it's an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury, right? And that, that we can all stack our hands on that, right? That, that risk is an action that exposes us to the possibility of loss or injury. What we're saying is that for us to, be, to claim that we're a disciple of Jesus, that we're functionally saying this, I want the fame of God to be known so badly in this world, in my neighborhood, in my community, in my household, in my heart, that I'm signing myself up for a life that says yes to choices that could make my life go really, really bad. That's a way to start a sermon right there. That's what we're signing ourselves up for as Christians. That's what we're signing ourselves up for. And, it's, and it's, it's a weird thing to sign yourself up for, but that is what Scripture says, that the normal rhythm of a disciple's life should be putting things on the line in order to glorify God and that those things might cost us dearly. They're risky. That's what we mean by risk. Or if, if you like, you can think of it uh, this way. This has been a helpful way for me to sort of understand risk as well. Risk is what happens when faith 
takes action, right? So faith is us putting our trust in the person of, of Jesus, the promises of Jesus. We're looking to Jesus and saying, we, we believe you, what you're saying about the reality and universe and all of that. And, 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 and risk then is taking those truths that we believe and stepping forward in faith and doing things that reflect that we believe what we believe. You see that? So, so risk is what happens when faith takes action. And what I want to do this morning is through this passage, make sense of how we are to grow into this attribute that on the surface seems like something you really wouldn't want to grow in. Like, why would I want to expose myself to wounding and, and hardship? Like, why is that a thing that we should be moving toward? I think it's a good question, and I think that in this particular parable we're looking at this morning, it's going to help answer that for us. So we're going to be looking at it together, and we're just doing one of the verses we read. Just one verse one parable, here we go, Matthew 13, 44. I'll read it for you, it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. So there's our passage. That's it, it's, it's very short and if you noticed, it's a, it's a parable. Well, now, what is a parable? A parable, very simply, it's a, it's a simple story used to illustrate a bigger story. It's, t- it's, it's telling a, a small story, a small thing, to, to make sense of a bigger reality, a, a spiritual truth or a moral or principle, that sort of thing. That's what's happening in a parable. And so, because it's this small, made-up story, it has the ability to tell us some things on a subject, but it's not exhaustive. It won't tell us all things on a subject. I just say this because I think it's just good for us to know as people who study the Bible by ourselves even that you're not to press a parable for meaning in the same way that you would say press Romans, you know, chapter eight. You don't don't press the parable in the same way because it's, it's not saying everything about a subject. It's just saying some things about a subject. And here in this parable this morning, we're going to look at some of those, some things. And what we're going to see is three components that must be at play in our lives in order for us to actually be people who lean into risk. That if these three things aren't happening in us, we will not be people who choose to put our lives on the line for the sake of of the gospel. So I think this text gives us three things, and here they are. We're going to see uh, that before risk does anything, before it does the risking, before risk does anything, it does these three things. It, number one, finds. Risk finds. Two, risk calculates. And three, risk looks to future joy. So risk finds, risk calculates, and risk looks to future joy. So we're going to start with risk finds. Look again at the verse with me. Verse 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Okay, th- th- we'll stop there. Uh, here's, here's all we're doing. We're just going to observe. What does the text say? What's it saying? And here's what we got. We got a treasure, right? Jesus tells us there's a treasure, and that, that treasure is what? It's located in a field, and it's hidden there, right? That there's a treasure hidden in a field. Now, commentators 
will tell us that this actually isn't like a really unusual event. We don't go around spotting buried treasure very much, but, but back in the first century, this is a normal thing. You got to remember, this is pre-Wells Fargo, right? This is not you driving up in your Honda Civic and like making withdrawals from the ATM and like, you're not doing that back then. There was no uh, real secure place to put your valuables in that day. So it was common practice at that time to just dig a hole, right? Just put my stuff in a hole and cover it up and just hope I don't die or forget where it goes, you know? Uh, that's ki- that was sort of the, the rhythm of the day. And you know how things go. The life happens, people move or they forget or wars happen and displace people. And, and so we, things go missing all the time. So what you have is a lot of random buried treasure. Uh, and, uh, and that's kind of what the scenario is right here. We have a field somewhere, and in this field, there's a treasure that's been left hidden there. And then we're introduced to our subject, and it's this man, and this man finds a treasure. Again, we're just observing what it says. But I, I want to pause over this point, though. I want to make a distinction. And it's a little odd, but I just want you to, to focus with me here. I want to make a distinction. Um, sometimes it's helpful to see what the text does not say. The text did not say uh, there's a treasure hidden in a field which a man saw, right? Of course, he did see it, right? You can't find something without seeing it. So there was seeing happening, but it didn't say that. It didn't say that a man saw the treasure. It didn't say that he, he spotted the treasure. It says that he found the treasure. Herisco, he found it. And I want us to distinguish this morning between merely seeing, okay, and finding between seeing and finding. The reason is, here's why. Because as I'm putting myself in that situation, I suspect that walking through the field that day, that guy probably saw a ton of stuff, right? There's a cat. There's a daffodil, right? He was just spotting stuff. He spotted all sorts of things, I'm sure, as anybody would. But when he came upon this one particular thing, the seeing of it did more for him than in the other scenarios. There's, there's something more happening here. You don't find a daffodil, but you do find a treasure, right? Now, why am I, why am I stressing this and belaboring this? Because I want us to see this. I want you to see that embracing risk will not happen for us until Christ moves beyond someone we just see into someone we find. There's the distinction. Or to say it differently, you will never risk for Christ until you treasure Christ. You just won't do it. You will never risk for Christ until you see him as a treasure. No one in history has laid their life down for something that bores them. Right? That just doesn't happen. Like radicals and and fanatics, there are a lot of things, right? But bored people, they are not, right? You never look at a fanatic and go like, that guy doesn't care about this subject, right? Like that, he cares too much, right? Like that's what makes him radical. Nobody lays their life down for something boring, which makes me just have to stop for a moment and just ask this, can we just get real for just a moment. It, I'm just going to ask this, and I don't mean to be funny or cute with this at all. I'm really asking, does, does Jesus just bore the mess out of you? 
Like, do you know what I mean? Like, look, we're in the South, and like a lot of us have just been around this Jesus thing for a long time, and maybe you just come to church every week, and maybe you're even in a home group, and just you've heard him a lot. You've seen him in the Word a lot. We sing these songs, and you're singing with us a lot, but if you're honest, like, it's just, I'm just so over it. Like, is that you? Is he just dull to you? Can can I tell you something? The, The most Christian thing some of us could do this morning is just own that. Like, is anybody else tired of just playing the, like, the game, like the Christian game? Uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. My parents raised me Christian, whatever. But it doesn't mean anything because you don't, tra- he's not a treasure to you. He's just a bit of news that I subscribe to because if I don't, I'd look weird at work or something like that. Like, that's not okay. You know the godly thing to do this morning is just raise your hand and just be like, he's dull. He's dull to me. I'm not interested. I'm not saying that's everybody, but I bet you in a room this size, there's some of us here, and that would actually honor Christ a lot more than us singing these songs and faking it. I don't want that for us. What if we were a culture of people who just started where we're actually at instead of where, like, we think we ought to be at? And then now we have a chance to really repent, don't we? To go like, no, I don't care. I, I, I don't care. But I don't want to care. I want to. And now, now you can actually ask him from an honest place to change your heart. But listen, listen, please. Before anything in your life will change, you have to be able to stop dead in your tracks in that field and marvel at that treasure and not just spot it. You see that? It has to be more. It has to be more. Risk always finds before it risks. Risk finds before it risks. But secondly, risk calculates. So risk doesn't just find, risk calculates. Look at the verse again with me. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that now, there is an uh, implicit observation I want to make here. It's not, it's not explicit, but it is here, and it's this. At some point, our guy in this story does a cost-benefit analysis, right? It's th- that must have happened. At some point, he, he sees the treasure, it, he finds it, and, and he does a little computing, and he eventually concludes that the worth of what he has stumbled on was greater than the worth of what he owned. Right? Now, how do we know? Well, we know that because because it says here in the text that he decides to sell all that he has to buy the field, which tells us that he knows that even if he lost everything else he had, if he had the treasure in the end, he would have everything he needed. You see that? So, so, Phase two, if you will, of what needs to be happening in us to drive us to risk is finding the treasure not just to be valuable, but exceedingly more valuable than what you might have to give up to get it. You see that? That it's not just 
precious to you, but it's supremely precious in a way that makes everything else you have pale by comparison. Uh, this, uh, this week at staff, uh, at church, we had like a, a fun uh, sort of hot seat thing where we did a Q&A with one of our staff members, and we are just asking her fun questions to get to know you sort of thing, and one of the questions somebody asked was uh, this, okay, your house is on fire, and uh, your family's out, pets are out, all that, and you have to go in and save just uh, a couple things. What do you go back in and save, right? And, you know, she's thinking about the question, and nothing's really coming to her mind. I don't know what I'd save. And it, eventually it dawns on her, well, um, you know, actually, I have some family heirlooms. Uh, my grandmother passed down um, some jewelry to us, very rare jewelry that's been in our family for years, and I have that. She gave it to me. It's very, it's really meaningful. It's, it's valuable to me. Uh, it's irreplaceable. You know, it's been in our family for a long time, and, and she sat, and, and then she thought for a little bit longer, <laughs> and then she just goes, um, ah, I'm good. I'll probably just let it burn. <laughs> what was that? Well, why was that? Because it's one thing to say that something is precious to you, but it's quite another thing to say that this thing is so precious to you that if you lost everything else but this thing, you'd be just fine. Like, it's not worth looking like Freddy Krueger to have a cool necklace for her. It wasn't worth that, right? And so she said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But, but, it is that way with Christ. He is exceedingly valuable. And he promises that even the greatest joys in the world can't compare to his company. That's what he promises. Philippians 3, 7 and 8, you guys know it. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. What? I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, or to put it in the words of uh, a, a Christian missionary in the mid-1900s, Jim Elliott, who went to reach the Aka people and an unreached people group who ended up killing him before he could even get the gospel message to him. Remember in his journals what he wrote? He had this quote where he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What does that mean? It means that Christians are to do the cost-benefit analysis and find that Christ is supremely precious. Not just precious, but above all my other things, precious. More precious than anything we might risk for him. And now, can I pause here and just be honest with you guys? I want to tell you a place where this tension like comes to a head in me all the time, and it's money. Money. We're going to talk about money because it's super fun to talk about money and not uncomfortable at all. So we're going to do that. Uh, for me and Kel, uh, when we first got married, well, I, I should say this. We were, uh, let's see, how much money? Uh, zero dollars. We had zero dollars <laughs> when we first got married. Um, and I came into the marriage with zero dollars, so it was great. Uh, and, but prior to uh, us getting married, I started sponsoring um, a native missionary. It was like a, 
uh, payment per month sort of thing. And it was a good bit of money for a guy who didn't make money. And, um, and then we were married, and we found ourselves at like a missions conference uh, where we had an opportunity to uh, sign up to sponsor uh, like another missionary if we, if we wanted to. And here we are standing at the table. I remember it. Uh, we were there, and we were asking ourselves that question of like, what does it look like to take a step of faith, like a risky move right now in our sponsorship? Like what would, what would push us into that territory of uncomfortable? Like where it's like, I don't know if we can do that you know, and, and I told Kelly, I was like, man, I'm feeling the Lord saying, like, uh, we should sponsor another missionary, and, like, kick it up to two, babe, like, let's do this, and she was like, hey, you know, it'd be real uncomfortable, let's do three, cool, no, no, that's great, no, that's great, uh, yeah, let me pray about it, and, um, if I get a verbal yes from God, we'll do it, it was so, that was so much more money than I had at the time to give, right? It was like, that, that was uncomfortable. That felt, for the first time in our financial situation, like, okay, there is a risk that's saying, if God doesn't come through for us as we step out, this doesn't happen. And you know what happened? We did it. We, we sponsored three missionaries and sponsored them for about the next decade. God met our needs he he met us in that step of faith now maybe some of you resonate with that feeling in me right that feeling of like I just I can't part with this because if I do what will happen you know that feeling right like um comfort and security are just such high values in this culture aren't they like, I want to know that my future is okay. And the more I have of this green stuff, I feel better about my future. And what it does, though, so often, don't you feel this? Is it, it just chokes out our ability to be generous in a way that glorifies God. It chokes out our ability to lean into moments that would bless and cause flourishing for people around us. When we choose not to give, when we choose not to be open-handed with things like our money, we are making a value statement in that moment. And uh, what we're functionally saying is this, I do value Christ, but there are some things that I value more than him such that I'm not willing to risk that for him. I mean, some of you just need to hear this this morning. The, the, the thing that probably you need to lean into this morning, hearing a text like this is, is probably something like giving. Like you've been really closed-handed with your money and you're not even doing something like tithing right now to the church. And by the way, I get it. There's a guy on stage who works for the church talking about giving to the church. But look, can we just, let, please think better of me than that. Let's not have a cynical view here. Look, I'm just trying to say what Scripture says all the time. And it's this. When we open up our hands from the stuff that we're clinging tight to, you know what that produces in us? More joy. And guess what? We want more joy for you. This is not just, I want something from you. This is, we want something for you this morning. There is a freedom that I've tasted as I've leaned into generosity moments that I haven't tasted in other things in my life. And so maybe for you, what it means this morning is going, we haven't been doing that, but I'm going to step out in faith in that uncomfortable space of, I don't know how we'll do this if we start giving, and you do that. And I think you'll find at the end of it, your hearts will blossom with joy in God.
So risk begins with finding Christ to be the treasure. Then it calculates that Christ is the treasure above all other treasures we have. And then finally, risk looks to future joy. Risk looks to future joy. Again, verse 44, halfway through, he says this. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, I've been thinking a lot this week about that phrase, in his joy, and I've been trying to make sense of where it's coming from. What's it linked to? It's been feeling confusing for me, and here's why. Just think about this for a moment. When that guy's walking through the field and he stumbles across that treasure, uh, does he own the treasure at that moment? Like, is it, does he possess it? Is it his? No, right? He just, he just spotted a treasure. He found a treasure, but it's not his, and yet Jesus is going to use words like in his joy, that he was full of joy at that time. He didn't own anything, and then I find that the text gets even weirder implicitly because not only does he not own it, but then it says in his joy he goes and sells everything he has. So imagine that. He gets rid of all of his stuff, which means that there's a point in this guy's life, whether it's a short moment or like a long moment, we don't know what it is, but there is a moment in his life where he not only doesn't have the treasure, but he also doesn't have anything. Like he literally owns nothing, and the word Jesus puts to that guy's heart disposition is joy. That's wild, right? Do you see that? What's it linked to? He doesn't own anything. He doesn't possess it yet. This is profound, and I don't want us to miss this. So listen, Jesus is teaching us something about how risk works. Namely, that it is carried on by a joy that looks past the current moment of lack and suffering to the treasure that the suffering is for. I'm going to say that again. Risk is carried on by a joy that looks past the current moment of, ow, I can't do this, of suffering, of lack, of want, of hardship. It looks past that to the treasure that all of that suffering is for so that we can be sustained by our joy even when we've lost everything. And look, here's the truth. The last thing I want to do this morning is to give anybody here a false impression that what risking for Jesus means is that you take a step out in faith and everything goes awesome. And I think one of the the things that we can feel from a text like this is like, oh, yeah, I could get down with that. I see a buried treasure. I sell my stuff. 15 seconds later, I turn, I buy that, and I'm a millionaire, right? That's how risk works. I don't want you to get that false impression this morning. Because the reality is that there is a good chance, listen, a good chance that you taking steps of risky faith in your life will cost you everything. 
and not just for 15 seconds, guys. Like 15 years, 30 years. There is no promise in the Bible that risking for Christ equals immediate gratification. Uh, That's not even how the Bible talks about it. Have you read uh, Hebrews 11? Hebrews 11, that great sort of hall of faith where the writer's given that litany of all those people who uh, have trusted in Christ, taken big leaps of faith for him, risked their lives for him, and all the beautiful things that that's produced in their life. It's a powerful passage of scripture. You get stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rahab and Noah and Moses and all of these guys. It's amazing, that passage, but how does he end that passage? You ever gotten to the end of it? You know what he wants us to to be left with as we're thinking about what risk could lead to? Here's how he ends the great hall of faith chapter in Hebrews 11, verse 35. Some, after saying that big long laundry list of amazing things that happened to people who trusted Christ, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Not every risk you take in this life will end pretty. Not every risk that you venture out for the sake of Christ and the good of others, not every risk you take ends with a bow tied on the top of it in this life. That's not how it goes. Remember, one of the, one of the moments for me that comes to mind when I think about that is uh, my neighbor uh, back when I lived in Houston. You know, we try to uh, engage our neighbors, uh, be friends with them, uh, give them the gospel when there's opportunities. And, you know, it, there's always kind of awkward moments there, but we, we want to, in faith, step out and, and help them see Jesus. And so uh, we try to lean into those moments. And when I was in Houston, there was a, a neighbor of mine named Jimmy, and I knew I would like him right away because his name's amazing. And so we started talking, and we became friends. And and um, at, at some point, some doors got open for me to take that risky step to share the gospel with them. And there was a number of times where that happened, so much so that, that it felt like, I mean, I was convinced this guy was about to come to know the Lord. Like, it was happening. Like, really great conversation, friendship going deep, all of that, gospel being preached to him. One day, I come out to him, and I give him a book. We were just talking about something. This book, I thought, helped clarify it, so it was a gift I was bringing to him. He was washing his car in his driveway. Here I come, hand him the book, and he didn't put his hands out, which is actually just a really awkward scenario in general. You kind of don't know what to do. I was like, okay. And, uh, and I'll never forget what he said. He just looked at me, and he said, uh, hey, um, I don't mind sharing offense with you, and being a neighbor, but um, we're done talking about Jesus today. And that was it. Our relationship changed radically after that point. He grew cold, he grew distant, he eventually moved after a couple years, never seen him again, never heard from him. That's how that risk ended, right? I said, yeah, I'm gonna give this guy the gospel, and you know how it ended for us? Estrangement, bitterness, coldness, distance, and that's where it stands today. 
And, 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 and that's a, a small thing compared to some of the things that God might be asking you to enter into. For some of you in here, God's calling you in this room to, to start things like fostering, right? Or orphan care or, or, or adoption, domestic or international. And you know what you're potentially signing up for if you do that? Potentially a lot of heartbreak, a lot of hard a lot of I'm welcoming situations into my life that I wouldn't have welcomed had I, had I said no to this. A lot of drama, a lot of cost. I'm an adoptive dad, and, and I've had a good situation, and it's been difficult. But some of you in this room, you know how hard that path can be. And there's not a pretty little bow on the end of it sometimes. Sometimes it just feels like a mess, and there's beauty in it, but it's, it's a mess, and it can be so difficult, and you're going to have to have the ability to look past the hard you find to the joy that's coming for you on the other end. Or else you'll never do it. You'll never do it. For some of you, uh, some, some in this room, and definitely some, some singles in this room, God might be calling you to leave the comforts of home and head to the mission field. That he's calling you away into a place that you're unfamiliar with, like my uh, friend uh, Ryan, who we went to college together, and now he's, he's spent the better part of 11 years uh, in East Asia, reaching uh, an unreached people group out there, and, uh, and you're entering into a situation of difficulty. I reached out to him last night just to check in on him, see how he's doing, and there's been some cool things that have happened in these past couple weeks even. Some, some new converts have actually been baptized for the first time. It's been amazing these past couple weeks, but when I asked how he was doing, he was like, man, to be honest with you, it's hard. And it's lonely. And I'm watching my kids grow up not knowing their family back home and seeing their grandparents. And I feel forgotten about a lot by people who said they were going to care for me and check in on me. It's a lonely, hard thing being out here. I have no programs to put my kids into here to help them grow up in the faith or just, there's not even a sports team. I'm their coach. I'm their dad. I'm their teacher. I'm their every, it's hard work out here. It's fatiguing. And God might be calling some of you to that same thing. There's reward in it, but it feels difficult. What sweetens it is for you to be able to look past the hard to see the joy that's coming to you on the other end of it, though. For some of you, the riskiest thing that God's calling you to do today is just to stay in your marriage and fight for it. That might be the riskiest thing you do all year is just to say, I'm in this. And it's hard, but I'm in this. And you know what? There is a chance that your spouse doesn't change one drop. And it's hard for months or years or always in this life. That's a possibility. And you're going to need more in that moment of saying yes to something that Jesus says is valuable and precious. You're going to need more in you than just a false hope that if you do a good thing for God and say yes to him, that somehow everything turns out smelling like roses. You're going to need something more than that. You're going to need to have eyes that can look ahead to the future that awaits you with your treasure, a future that will make sense of all the hard decisions that you've said yes to in this life for the glory of God. 
I don't know if you've heard of uh, a guy named Paionius. He was a martyr in uh, Rome in about 250 AD. And he was a guy who essentially wouldn't agree to bow the knee to Rome and chose instead uh, to be martyred for his faith. And the way that they did that was uh, through burning. They burned this guy alive. And, and uh, before they did it, the Roman proconsul actually appealed to him. They felt sorry for him. They appealed to him not to die, but just submit to the demands of Rome and you'll live, man. And he wouldn't do it. He said, I will not. They looked at him before he died and they said, why do you rush toward death? And he looked at him and replied back, I'm not rushing towards death but towards life. Do you see what he saw? When he thought about the sacrifice and the risk of giving his life for the glory of God, he didn't see that as a death. He saw that as the thing that brings life. He had understanding that on the other side of that moment, on the other side of the smoke and flame rising around him, was joy everlasting and inexpressible. And so it was an easy decision for him. It was easy. I'm not rushing toward death. If anything, I'm rushing toward life. Even the highest cost, listen, that you pay in this life for risking for Jesus, in the final analysis will be deemed really small in compared for what's coming. Do you know what God promises for those of us who trust him? <laughs> Do you know what's on the table for us? Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen, every time we risk something for the sake of God's glory, we are shouting to the world, I know something about this thing that you don't. This is, a, this is like spiritual insider trading, right? We've got the scoop from the inside. I know the CEO. He told me which way the company's headed. And what I'm saying is sell, sell. I want out. Get me out of this thing because I know at the end of this story is my everlasting joy. We have the insider information. We can count on a bright future with Jesus forever because we know what it cost him to purchase it for us. Jesus, we're celebrating this next week, y'all. Jesus came to earth for us and lived a perfect life in our place, doing all the things we couldn't do. And then he crawled up on a cross and took on all the wrath of God that you and I rightly deserved, and he absorbed it for us. He took our death, buried with it, and then rose again, defeating death, officially promising to everyone who ever risks venturing out in faith for him that death is not the end. That for us, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus forever. And he purchased it for us 2,000 years ago. And no one can take that away. And one day, we are going to see it crystal clear. One day. Like, like, right now, it feels like faith. It's faith. 
you've said things, I'm trusting that's true, but one day it will be sight, y'all. One day it will be sight. Right now, we believe that all the things we're doing that are costly for us are going to turn out for our everlasting good, and one day we'll see the good. It will make sense one second after you die. Everything that you've ever risked for Christ, everything you've ever ventured out, every time you've ever said yes to an uncomfortable moment for the sake of his glory and another person's flourishing and good, it will make crystal clear sense how he has multiplied that and turned that into a million joys that you would never be able to count in a lifetime. You'll see it with such clarity. It will take your breath away and cause your jaw to drop. I was uh, watching a, a video this week that somebody sent me, and I, I don't normally um, end a sermon showing a video. It feels kind of kitschy to me, but I want to show it to you now because it did such a good job this week of helping me see what that second after I die is going to feel like. And all the hard moments that are just so difficult to move into, that are going to cost me so much in this life, the feeling that I will have the moment I die, knowing with crystal clarity that it was all worth it for the sake of this God that I serve. This is a a video of, um, you might have seen clips of this before, Uh, colorblind folks who can't see colors and they're given those uh, special glasses that now they can for the first time see colors vividly and clearly this is a video of that and as we watch that here's all i'm asking you to do i want you to put yourself in that spot and know that that's what's coming for you everything that's cost you something greatly to see christ made much of in this life will one day be seen for what it is precious and valuable beyond measure and it will change us Not a single risk you will take for Christ will be wasted in the end. It will all be turned for your everlasting joy. And when you see it on that day, every cost, every loss, every bit of suffering you've endured for the sake of Christ will make sense. And it will be I, I just feel like I so see in a mirror dimly. Oh, and I just want eyes. I want eyes of faith to be able to, to believe more. That no cost in this life is really a cost at all in the final analysis. God, would you, would you help us to see you as the great treasure above all else? Lord, would you change us to be people who really venture out in risky ways for your namesake? You're worth it, God. You're worth it. You've made us to do this and to love you and to lay our lives down for you and you're worth it, God. Would you help us to believe that you're worth it in such a way that we change and we'd be different. That we would take those steps, God, that that we don't take now. We're just asking for you to do the work, Holy Spirit. 
Not these next minutes to change us. Just change us, God. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.